Welcome to Podcast with Cooper Cherry. I'm very excited to have David Taylor on today to discuss CRISPR. And this is not the kind of CRISPR that you find at the um, at the Chili's on 45th and Lamar. That's a different kind. Though hopefully if there is an expert out there on chicken CRISPRs, I'd like to have you on ASAP. But uh, David, is uh, it's awesome to have you on. Thanks so much for coming out on a Sunday. Um, just to introduce David, he is an assistant professor in uh, the <clears throat> College of Natural Sciences, specifically dealing with molecular biosciences. So, David, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, so, this is a really interesting topic. I've been hearing a lot about sort of on the podcast uh, circuit. And um, so, but I want to start off before we delve right into, you know, the CRISPR technology. Uh, give us a little bit of a background, perhaps, on sort of what initially even just got you into the, you know, interested in science as a kid, perhaps, and sort of how that progressed for you to uh, where you are today. Sure. So uh, I grew up in Pennsylvania, and uh, I was always interested in math, uh, science. I had like a little chemistry set uh, growing up. I think maybe a lot of people do, but I was really I was really into it, making things change colors and things like that. Um, and so I was 100% convinced that I was going to be... Uh, a medical doctor. So I was like 100% pre-med. I went to Syracuse University and um, with, the, with the, you know, majoring as a pre-med. Um, and I had a, uh, I had a really awesome advisor who um, called me in one day and said, uh, hey Dave, you're kicking ass in all your um, chemistry and biology classes. I know you want to do medicine, but why don't you just try basic research for a semester? Try for a semester, you'll get credit for it. If um, you don't like it, fine. Just go back to doing what you were doing, and um, but just do that for me. So, so I followed his advice, and and I did it. And so I joined um, a laboratory that was studying some nucleic acid uh, biochemistry in the department, and. I just never looked back after that. I kind of fell in love with the whole idea of, and I was super unsuccessful as an undergraduate researcher. Like, I think I got an experiment to work once <laughs> and uh, tried to replicate it for the rest of the time that I was there, and it it was never replicated. But I learned a lot about what it's like to do research and kind of the joy you can get with successes and then also how you just you need to keep, keep at it and... <laughs> right. and uh, and enjoy the process uh, too. And so, yeah, so I never looked back and then I decided that um, science was for me and I wanted to um, you know, do research. And then later I realized that I wanted to become, you know, a, a faculty member. So, um, so I went to Yale and got my PhD. Um, I started studying this um, technique at the time that was, uh, affectionately or non-affectionately referred to as blobology. So cryo-electron microscopy at that time was limited to sort of a low-resolution molecular envelope of things that you were looking at. And I liked it because you could directly see what, what, what it is. So if you had your you know, particle of interest or your macromolecule of interest, you want to study whatever enzyme or 
you, you just threw it onto a grid and then you could look at it uh, directly and later average it and get structures. But in any case, you put it in the microscope and you could you could look at it. And I thought that was brilliant. Um, and it turned out to be a great investment because uh, recently, um, a few years ago, there was a, a revolution in sort of the the hardware that's used for electron microscopy. And now people are getting these super high resolution structures and crystallographers don't even use it anymore. Don't even do crystallography anymore. They're jumping to the technique that I use. So I didn't know that at the time that that was going to be that way, but it turned out to be kind of a great, uh, a great choice for me. And, uh, in grad school, I studied, uh, this protein called Dicer. It's involved in RNA interference. It's kind of the eukaryotic equivalents, uh, to CRISPR, to the CRISPR systems and bacteria. And uh, then I went to do a postdoc uh, with Jennifer Dowden and Ava Nogales at UC Berkeley. And so Jennifer um, is quite well known for determining the mechanism for how Cas9 works, that it needs two RNA molecules to then go target DNA. And that was, uh, you know, a major, her and Emmanuel Charpentier and the, the postdocs that worked for her, that was, a, you know, the major breakthrough for this to turn into sort of the the uh the craze that it is uh to actually on a side note i watched rampage on the on a plane the other day and the, the animals are crispered that's that's how they become really huge and start destroying cities so i thought that was pretty uh, i thought that was pretty interesting it's <laughs> oh, making wow. its way into seeping into the popular culture huh? yeah movies with the rock now have crisper in it so <laughs> <laughs> the rock is probably uh, the result of CRISPR, yeah, perhaps. I, I, wouldn't be, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> oh, man, that's that's funny. That's cool that you, uh, Jennifer Dowden, because I, to just do a little background research for the podcast, uh, I checked out a couple of things that Radiolab had done, and they definitely mentioned her name, obviously, as one of the one of the two kind of competing teams of researchers that sort of, you know, got this thing really, really going. I hear perhaps in the U.S. Maybe is is that the right context? I guess. Yeah, I think that it was in the U.S. is really where uh, it it started with with the with the major um, contribution by Emmanuel Charpentier, who was in Europe at the time. But right now, there's a major, you know, patent warfare between the Broad Institute, um, you know, in the Northeast and Berkeley uh, on on the West Coast. So let's, I guess we should back up and sort of, so CRISPR is an acronym, and if I'm not mistaken, this stands for Clustered Regularly Interspace Short Palindromic Repeats, correct? That's that's right. Nice. Um, and that's a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I can I can make it a little bit simpler. So okay. the, the whole name is basically just meant to describe these the locuses where the RNAs come from. And so basically that whole mouthful just means that you have these little short sequences that are in sort of these areas that are really easy to identify because they have these repeat sequences next to where these uh, elements are. And so this all started from, there were some Japanese researchers that published a paper. Yeah, so that, but that, they didn't know what it was. So they didn't know what it was at the time. So I think it was in... Uh, it's either the mid or late 80s, I think, that they were doing some other related study. And at the very end of their paper, they note these uh, that they have identified these interesting uh, loci in bacteria. But and that's it. That's, you know, they just say we, we notice these interesting 
things. And then uh, later on, people uh, investigated it further. I think it really started, the research really started uh, taking off in the early 2000s on uh, CRISPR-related biology. So these are sort of, the way I heard it described is these bacteria will sort of absorb sequences or uh, I guess actual DNA coding from viri, we'll say. Yeah. And they integrate that into their own genome directly. And that's what the researchers noticed, that there were these repeating patterns. That's right. And then they made the the connection was eventually made that what was the mechanism that was happening was this was sort of um, some sort of, I guess, defense mechanism, for lack of a better term. That's that's exactly right. So uh, kind of the cool story is it started out with people in the yogurt industry. And so they were realizing that um, uh, that their, you know, vats of yogurt, like this side was okay. It looked like it's delicious creamy yogurt. The other side did not. And um, so bacteria are obviously playing a major role in culturing um, these things. And they realized that they had something was going wrong in, in certain senses and others. So they would clean it all out. they try to get rid of contamination, whatever, um, and they would do it again. And then they realized that, oh, another set of went down, uh, wasn't, wasn't, make, you know, wasn't making yogurt. And uh, finally what they did is they actually sequenced the bacteria from each of those cultures, ones that were growing fine and ones that were being disgusting, and they realized that the ones that were growing fine had actually incorporated uh, sequences, and when they mapped those sequences back, they realized they were coming from phages, and phages is just a fancy word for a virus that infects a bacteria. And so that's when it was kind of like the haha moment where, you know, these bacteria are taking up uh, these pieces of the virus DNA, and in doing so, somehow uh, have immunity to those uh, phages again in the future. So now all the yogurt that we eat is crisp, is crispered, but I don't think they have to <laughs> categorize as genetically modified because it happens naturally before the product. Of, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Um, I guess we should perhaps even back up a little bit sure. further to really get a basic understanding of sort of the difference between prokaryotes and eukaryotes. I, I don't remember this from high school biology or I guess co- intro. So. <laughs> Yeah, sure. So, so eukaryotes are, you know, what we are mostly used to thinking about and, and what we definitely see. So us, plants, um, are, you know, like my dog, uh, um, eukaryotic organisms contain a nucleus. Um, and then prokaryotes are, you know, come in various flavors, but, it, you know, for all intents and purposes are, 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 our bacteria, uh, the things that we worry about, um, you know, getting an outbreak of, you know, salmonella, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, like flesh, like make it more <laughs> exciting with some flesh-eating bacteria. I don't know if it's a flesh-eating, <laughs> I don't know if that's a bacteria or if that's a... Uh, oh, yeah, that's true. I, I think it might be a uh, fungus. Interesting. And a fungus, I'm pretty sure, is a eukaryote. See, I should know that. But, right. right. Uh, yeah, I think you're right, actually, in my st- just kind of looking over it. But uh, so, wait, damn it, I'm already getting confused between these. So the type the type with a nucleus is eukaryote? That's right. Okay, so eukaryotes evolved, you know, I guess from a larger, you know, we're backing up from a high level. They evolved from prokaryotes like bacteria or these single-celled uh-huh. 
organisms. There was over, at some know, point there was a yeah, uh-huh, there was a diversification, diversification branching out. Yeah. So in that sense, so is this sort of like because I think that also something like mitochondria were also like a separate organism that co-evolved or somehow got involved in in eukaryotes yeah so it's um i think that the hypothesis is that it was taken up and it became at first it was sort of a symbiotic relationship and then eventually it became a a part of the cell that we rely on heavily the cell relies on heavily today but as far as the prokaryotes are concerned how does that affect i guess sort of the dna or the rna or is that just sort of floating around within the cell structure versus like in a eukaryote it's mostly contained in the nucleus or can you give us maybe yeah so so bacteria don't have um sort of a protective covering for their uh nuclear information and actually what bacteria normally have is what we call plasmid so it's a circularized dna molecule uh, in which all of their genes are located. And so that's why they're so useful for, we use them in a lot of research purposes because we can just stick a plasmid in them. It'll produce what we want it to produce um, just by whatever we uh, tr- transfect into the, into the bacteria. So it's very different from the, you know, the nucleus where we have a nuclear envelope, we have a nucleolus, we have compact DNA that's wrapped around nucleosomes, um, and then even higher order architecture that keeps uh, our nuclear information uh, contained. Contained, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, inaccessible, like a, yeah. inaccessible in cases that it needs to be, inaccessible sort of, in yeah. cases where it needs to be. Okay, and then bacteria are simply it's sort of rogue code DNA or RNA or both, or they're different no, types. No, bacteria is definitely. I mean, not bacteria. I meant to say vir- viruses. Viruses can come in many different flavors. So they can come in, uh, you know, from double stranded DNA, single stranded DNA, double stranded RNA, single stranded RNA. So they, they have a lot of different flavors. They're, so, so viruses are are probably actually more interesting than the distinction between prokaryotes and eukaryotes. So, so viruses, the, the, you know, what nobody can figure out is whether they're dead or alive. Right. Right. And so there can be cases made on, on both fronts. And I think that that makes them, uh, super interesting. And it's kind of a fun, you know, philosophical conversation yeah, to have sure. with one of your friends sometimes, what, what it means to be alive and what it means to be dead. But viruses are very, um, well evolved to do what they need to do, which is to find a host, use the host to make more of them pop out and, and go and do it again. And, um, yeah, they're pretty cool. Is there any difference? And this is again, very high level, um, question about, is there a difference between the way that CRISPR works and the way that, I don't know if, inoculation or perhaps that's not even because no no, you're only inoculated against viruses right yeah well no it's the it's the it's it's very equivalent to so people have referred to as crispers for bacteria being like vaccination cards like you know how we needed to i mean i don't think in our days we had vaccination cards but at least we needed to have a form signed when we went to high school or whatever that said we had xyz injections or you know when you go to college you have to have what is it? The meningitis, meningitis one. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so it's a lot like that. So it is 
it, it is a lot like a inoculation for bacteria. It's the same as we get inoculated for like hopefully the flu coming up soon. We'll get and hopefully they'll choose the right ones and we won't get sick from the flu uh, <laughs> this year. Right. Or create some kind of crazy version of the flu. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's always a possibility. Right. Um, so what are the obviously you gave a really great example of the um, the yogurt. Is there another sort of practical application that we're like currently seeing in, in terms of like something that's going to the market or is this still primarily in a, in a largely research phase? Yeah, so I'm not so sure about the I, I don't know if there's anything else that's um, going to the market per se, but I can tell you that um, one area where you see uh, just huge, huge benefits from the CRISPR technology is basic research applications. Uh, so it used to be very, very difficult to, not impossible, th- these could definitely be done, took a long time, is to make targeted mutations and say your favorite model organism of interest that you're studying, you know, gene that causes diabetes, something like that, right? And so you would, uh, if you wanted to make the, you think you found this gene, you wanted to make the mouse that was a knockout for this and see what happens, um, it was very, very time consuming um, and, and difficult to do, relied on different technologies. And uh, with CRISPR, it's just so damn easy that I was, I was talking to somebody else the other day and they were telling me that there's a guy selling CRISPR kits out of his garage or something like that somewhere in the, the I don't know what they're using it for, but there's a guy in the Bay Area that's selling CRISPR kits out of his uh out of his garage, which I wouldn't recommend. <laughs> right. uh, apparently there's a YouTube video of him like injecting himself with it too. So I don't know what he thought he was accomplishing with that, but I would probably not do that. <laughs> right. We're going to wind up with some kind of zombification. Yeah. Yeah. Plague or something. Well, if this, <laughs> if this guy keeps playing, you know, mother nature is pretty powerful. So you don't want to uh, take steps uh, too quickly. And I think that that's where a lot of the conversation is actually going now in terms of CRISPR, research is what are the ethical concerns right. and where do we draw lines in terms of when it's when we can use it or what do we need to even think about it yeah. before we start uh, those experiments those are definitely fascinating questions to ask and just to even parse but I wanted to you mentioned something like you mentioned the term knockout yeah uh, could you describe a little bit sure to, or sure. what that is, means sure so a knockout is where you remove um, the function of a particular gene. Um, so I guess maybe a, a good example would be, um, let me think if I can think of a good example. Let's make a made, let's make a made up example. Okay. So say that there was a, there was a gene that it produced a protein it made the mouse fat. Okay. So the knockout would be, I remove that gene and now I have skinny mice, right? I know I got the knockout because I have mice that are skinny. And so a knockout is just you remove uh, part of the genome and then see what happens from there. And this is happening, and I heard this described as sort of a, like almost a pair of molecular scissors cutting out this specific strand of That's RNA right. or DNA. That's right. Jennifer likes to use that that uh, analogy a lot, and it's it's very true. So... So the CRISPR enzyme goes in, it makes a cut on both sides, so DNA is double-stranded, so you have two strands, it needs to cut on both strands, kind of scissors that out, and then you tape it back, and then you tape back <laughs> in. And CRISPR doesn't do the taping back in. The normal 
uh, other cellular factors oh, put it back in. They integrate yeah. it sort that's of right. as it's a natural, like it's its own. Well, that's right, because it has to, uh, the worst thing that could happen to a, to a cell is a double-stranded break. Um, uh, it leads to cancer, things like that. So we have, um, you know, we have all very elaborate uh, mechanisms to actually correct those kinds of mistakes so that we all don't get cancer at 30 and die, right? So, I think an example that, the, uh, that I heard in this radio lab episode was that they were discussing removing, I guess, perhaps a protein or something that generated um, a particular type of mosquito that carries malaria. And this basically was applying this to removing this portion of the mosquito DNA that allows them to be a harbinger for for something like malaria. Yeah. Yeah. So there's they do a lot of things uh, with mosquitoes now, and they even do these things called gene drives, which are which involve CRISPR, and so they kind of are self-propagating things that will kill out um, the mosquitoes actually themselves, like just kill whole populations of, of mosquitoes. Interesting. Uh, that's funny that you transitioned right there because I was actually going to just that was be my next drive. question was going to be about the gene drive technology, yeah. which sounded super interesting in terms of so being able to. I guess in most applications so far, this has been something that is isolated to an individual or a group of individuals that are being studied. Yeah, um, that's, that's exactly right. Um, but it's, then it doesn't, pro- that genetic change doesn't necessarily propagate to the next generation. Like no. it'll be bred out or there's just through national natural genetic variation, eventually that gene will be removed well, on its so, own? Or? So it depends on it depends on what application that you're talking about. So in research applications, I think you can keep it going for quite a while because there's no, we have no um, really, you know, I like animals, but there's not, you know, there's not a lot of moral uh, issues with, at, with the embryo, at, right. the, at the embryo stage making a change. And then if you make the change in the germline, then that change is forever and it will be passed down to to next generations. And then you can breed it out by crossing certain ones that don't have uh, that particular mutation for sure. But that's like a change that's forever. Um, and the applications, uh, we, we're, we haven't done that. Um, we haven't done that in humans. There's, there was a Chinese group that did it on some human embryos. Um, but other than that, we we you know we're sticking we're staying away from from embryos. And I also have to just admit for you know you and the listeners is I'm not a applications person, so I'm not a specialist in using right. uh, CRISPR for uh, sort of that. Okay, that's right. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, but that's a good also segue into let's. I want to hear a little bit about more what your specific area of research, and even if it's not even doesn't have to be limited to the CRISPR conversation, because I know you have some other areas of interest. So definitely would be happy to hear about some of those as well. Sure. So my my lab focuses on basically macromolecular machines, machines, and how they work in. Um, and either uh, prokaryotes or, or eukaryotes. And so um, we're very interested in, obviously, CRISPR still um, in terms of the mechanisms of how it works, so not, so not in getting it to work better usually. That's not what I do or even getting it to work. Um, so I get a lot of 
colleagues, a lot of emails from people asking me how to, how can they do their genome editing experiment better. <laughs> and I have to admit that I'm not the best person to ask that question to because I've never actually done, I don't think, a CRISPR experiment. Uh, but uh, what we do is try to understand sort of the molecular mechanisms behind how it's working. So when I was in Jennifer's lab, one of the things that we worked on were structural biology of different CRISPR complexes, but definitely Cas9 too, to understand how it actually finds these DNA sequences. Once it's found the DNA sequence, how does it unwind it um, to create uh, sort of the structure that's necessary for it to do its scissor-like mechanism <laughs> to, to cut it out? <laughs> that's right. Um, <laughs> that's the actual sound effect? Yeah, it is. Uh, <laughs> and there's, there's probably an animation somewhere that shows right. it doing that. I, I, gu- I guarantee you there is. Uh, And so those are the kinds of things that we were investigating. And so my lab is still focused on, and and that's actually something that is worth bringing up is that everybody talks about CRISPR. And when they talk about CRISPR, I'm almost positive that, well, I am positive what they're talking about is the Cas9 enzyme, which is a very particular type of uh, CRISPR uh, systems. And there are a lot of CRISPR systems. And um, they come in many different flavors and they all do kind of really cool things. There's one that, uh, there's one system that targets RNA um, using a multi uh, subunit effector complex. So Cas9 is, the reason Cas9 is so popular and powerful is because it's just a single enzyme and it cuts DNA. And so it's very, very easy to use in experiments. When you start using multi subunit uh, things, the experiments become more difficult in terms of getting them into cells. but that doesn't mean they're not still super interesting and are doing really cool biology. And so there's there's ones that target RNA. Um, there's ones uh, that target DNA, but they also use multi-subunit um, complexes and uh, effector nucleases that come on later in the process so that they don't even have activity themselves. They just are these complexes with a CRISPR in it that goes and finds the DNA that's complementary to that CRISPR RNA. Then later we'll recruit something that will actually do the <laughs> okay. Oh, so you did. You did mention, was it Ricer? I'm guessing that's is, is that Dicer. A tech? Dicer. Dicer. That's, ah, that's Dicer, what I worked Dicer. on. Yeah, as a as a graduate student. So Dicer is an enzyme that's involved in the RNA interference pathway, and so RNA interference was, as was also a very uh, important uh, discovery, and also has implications for. Um, for gene knockdown. So <laughs> we'll, we'll make it a little bit more complicated. So knockout would be a total loss of function of whatever it is that you're trying to get rid of. And then a knockdown would be is to just change the level of it as low as possible and, and study the differences. And, and uh, siRNAs that are part of this RNA interference field are, are very powerful for those types of experiments, these, these knockdown experiments. And uh, sometimes you have to knock it down because if you knock it out, you die, right? So you can't have a dead mouse. You don't learn a lot from the dead mouse other than that gene was uh, essential uh, for survival. <laughs> right. Uh, um, so sometimes you have to do the knock, uh, the knock down experiments. And, and Dicer is the protein that cuts longer double-stranded DNAs into smaller DNAs that then go on to silence uh, uh, RNAs that then go on to silence, uh, silence genes. I guess we could even talk about the difference between RNA and DNA and sort of, because I'm sort of interested to hear what the actual, what you said, the RNA, inter, 
Yeah, yeah. So RNA RNA interference um, is a is a is a eukaryotic system. Uh, it utilizes uh, double strand RNA that's um, introduced into the cell. It's also important um, for endogenous things that happen. So we have in our bodies a lot of mic- they're called microRNAs. So they're process- processed out of these transcripts and um, by by another cool enzyme named uh, Drosha. Uh, so Drosha cleaves out a little bit of it, Dicer cleaves a sm- in, into a smaller piece, then loads it onto a protein that then goes and silences uh, genes. It's called Argonaut. Um, and uh, that is very important in biology because, uh, you know, there's the, I, I, I haven't studied in a long time, but the last time I checked when I was, you know, writing my thesis or whatever, it was something like 60% of our genes are regulated in some way by these small microRNAs that are produced by our body um, to do uh, sort of small changes in gene expression throughout our development to make sure that, for instance, that, you know, we have both left and right hands and things like that. So, so they kind of help shape the expression uh, of, of genes throughout, um, throughout our body and throughout tissues and things like that. And so then the difference between... Um, RNA and DNA is just the, the sugar backbone. Um, so it's either a deoxyribose or a ribose, and, uh, and that, that, that's just, that makes the difference. Interesting. So if you don't mind putting on your speculative hat sure. for me a little bit, and we can just do a little speculation on, so what, what did, have you sort of looked into or, or you know, even heard discussions perhaps from colleagues about what perhaps the future applications of this will be beyond, like, I guess, I know this is definitely something for cancer is an area of research yeah, that yeah. this could be potentially, you know, a big um, breakthrough for, you know, down the road somewhat. It could potentially be, the, you know, the applications are sort of limitless in terms of the types of health things that um, could could be overcome by technology like this. And I mean, it's still very early days, uh, but everything is pointing to signs of this having extreme promise uh, for these things. So cancer is a tough one uh, because cancer usually involves uh, multiple genes that are, um, that are, you know, awry and that um, need to be uh, changed. It's not something that's just like a one-time uh, you know, one gene sort of influence. Um, but there's other examples of diseases where it's literally one gene um, that that causes the problem. So I can think of sickle cell anemia. Um, and, uh, you know, if you correct that, then you can uh, correct, you know, people don't have sickle cell anemia anymore. Uh, so I think that this could be applied to, to many different diseases. And you, it's still in early days in terms of understanding how uh, one major thing that people need to think about is off-target effects. So what DNA is it targeting that's not the DNA that you want to target? So we have lots of DNA in our body, and um, there are, there's one spot you want to edit when you, when you introduce your Cas9 and CRISPR RNA. And uh, if you edit other areas, it may be inconsequential. Uh, but it might not be. It right. might actually be something pretty important that you cut in that that you ch- 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 out and and, <laughs> and that's 
and that's not optimal and that's right. not going to be good. So we're just, so people are still trying to understand the off target effects, the best ways to get them into cells, um, especially uh, into like human cells and uh, how to keep the, how to keep it active and how long it needs to be active for. And uh, so right now I know people are doing ex vivo therapy where it's actually um, blood's taken out, it's edited and then reintroduced into into the body and and changes can be made uh, that way so as far as I know nobody's injecting it I, I could be wrong no one's injecting it into uh, like they're they're not being inoculated with with cas9 yet um, but you know there's all there's always going to be things that need to be overcome uh, before I think it's ready for for prime time uh, diagno um, therapies but I think you know, I think it'll get there and it'll just take some time. So I think even, and this is obviously down the road, but the discussion about even this application towards mosquitoes, what what effect does that have in terms of, I, I think guess, the already, bio... I think they've already done the mosquito experiment. Yeah, yeah uh, but just the, done it's it like, and like how... Killed out like a whole section of mosquitoes. How does that mutation end up affecting, I guess, the ecosystem in terms of like, was the what happens when that, That's you know, good. the animal that is supported by that you know that eats mosquitoes and you know what i mean then it kind of gets i mean that's a great really large scale right that's a great question i was actually reading something by the guy that did the experiment where he was like he thinks about it he was talking about how he thinks about it all the time what what uh you know what what was unleashed but um you know i think we the world can do with that some mosquitoes i think that's probably okay (laughs) uh but you know, I mean, yeah, you know, I don't know what the quote is, but with like, all, maybe it's from like a superhero movie, actually, with like awesome powers comes awesome responsibility or yeah. something like Spider-Man, that. Yeah, Spider-Man, Uncle yeah, Ben. Yeah, yeah, Well, so there you go. So, so um, you know, this isn't something to just be wielded around um, as if it's a toy. Uh, it's, it's something that's very serious and that people are having very serious conversations about before it's ready uh, to be used, um, especially in, in, embryo, in germline, right, where changes will be, um, will be uh, inherited and could it potentially be very beneficial for, um, you, know, you know, curing things that maybe that individual would never have been born or would have suffered uh, from uh, certain, you know, inherited disorders early on in life, um, which could be very, you know, very beneficial, but then, you know, it has to be balanced by, well, if you can do that, what else, um, what else can you do? And like one of the examples that people always bring up is like the eugenics kind of thing about it is like, well, you know, for instance, I wish I had blue eyes, right? I don't have, the listeners can't see me. I do not have blue eyes, brown eyes. I wish I had blue eyes. Um, (laughs) But I don't think that that's what CRISPR should be used for, is to be creating, um, you know, blue-eyed babies. Uh, but, you know, um, you can imagine um, that in the wrong hands, these kinds of things could be used uh, for nefarious purposes. And But that's been true, I think, throughout time, right, uh, with all sorts of different uh, scientific uh, yeah. discoveries. And, I mean, there's also, what, IVF and sort of things. So it's like we are already somewhat dipping our toes into that but not on the level that you know the potential that CRISPR has that's right so I think that's interesting though that you mentioned eye color because is that 
I wanted to ask you sort of about the potential applications in the sense of like, there is a sort of genetic limit or an, I don't know what the word is that I'm really, or maybe perhaps an evolutionary limit on what kinds of changes you can actually implement. So for, and the example you gave, could you, is it even theoretically possible that you could actually ma- manipulate your current eye color or would this have to be done? You would have to select for that at the, I guess at the um, embryo embryonic level. I think it's something that you would have to do at the embryonic level. Um, I think it's pretty, pretty. The 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 the, uh, the program that was installed when you were first <laughs> born is is pretty strong, and um, yeah, I don't think that it's going to change. So I think your best bet is to get like the contacts that have different <laughs> different color or uh, yeah. Because I was even going further, like. This is not something where, yeah, you're going to be able to have, I don't know, like they were describing as like a a pig with wings, like something like that is not, that doesn't really, that's not the type of thing that you can do even with this technology. You know, there has to be sort of an... I'm not sure, I'm not sure that that's true. I'm not sure that we couldn't make pigs that that fly. (laughs) So there's... um, uh, there's another guy, a uh, very famous um, scientist in general, but also in the CRISPR field. His name's George Church, and he's trying to make woolly mammoths. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. He's trying to bring back the woolly mammoth. And so I, I've, t- I've spoken with him, and he says, well, he thinks the best he's going to do right now is like, uh, uh, how did he put it? Um, Arctic adapted elephants. Like, that's <laughs> what he's going to be able to get to. Um, but, you know... You know, you just make enough changes back to because if if we have that genome, then we know what needs to be changed from a current elephant to get back to that um, sort of state. So, I mean, that's a pretty interesting thing uh, that he's trying to do. Um, and then why he wants the woolly mammoth is actually even more interesting. So it's to like knock down trees and help the permafrost for global uh, warming effects. Oh, so yes, he, I, his I, idea is that woolly mammoths are going to solve this problem. I actually have heard about that. I heard about that. I think it was on perhaps Joe Rogan's podcast. I think he was talking about this. I, I've definitely heard about that. I didn't make the connection yeah. between the, the yeah. that CRISPR was somehow involved in that. Uh, that's really interesting. Um, so, I, David, I just want to say, if you ever need a, a test subject <laughs> for, you know, either like a super soldier yeah. serum, perhaps, maybe a Weapon X type. Yeah. <laughs> Um, let me give you my address uh, okay. and you can just uh, kidnap me. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Did you ever, um, speaking of, did, you mentioned Spider-Man. Did you ever read comics at all growing up? Uh, no, I, I mean, I think I did, but I was never a big, uh, I was never a big comic book uh, person, but I do like movies. Like I've always really loved movies and, and then the Marvel movies, obviously, uh, um, blow me away all the right time. On. So, yeah. Yeah, I was just kind of curious because I, I, I'd always been into the X-Men as a kid. And I think, there, you know, although that's a little bit different, that's there is somewhat of an overlap to a degree in terms of like just the idea of, of course. you know, genetically modified, you know, even though that was sort of a natural thing well, we're all, for them. We're all mutants, which is like the interesting thing, because what is what is what would you call a wild type for for a human, right? Like, is that kid looking at us right now in the doorway? Is he a wild type uh, specimen? I don't know. Um, so, you know, in reality, we're all mutants. So, I mean, it's not it's not far-fetched uh, 
um, to think that, you know, well, what if you got a mutation that made you do something kind of interesting? I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it's, you know, it is science fiction, but it's not that far right. from uh, the, the realm of possibility. So I, I actually think X-Men uh, can <laughs> teach people a lot, actually, about, you know, what genes are and you know but maybe if they step back and think a little bit more about what it means what it means to be human right and um you know there's a very very small percentage of our genome that actually makes us different from each other all of it all the rest of it is pretty much the same right um and there's only a little bit that makes us who 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 we actually are um which is which is pretty cool even across even i mean yeah, among humans, but even in the sense of mammals or, you know, any type of in- vertebrate animal, like there's not a, a lot of different, right? We share yeah. a, quite a bit of our DNA with, yeah. yeah, I don't know, like a horse or whatever. Yeah. Which I think is, um, so do you, are you, are you fascinated at all by the sort of ethical questions and the, sort of the philosophical aspect of it? that? Is that something that you think about? It's not a lot or no? it's not something that I it's not something that I think about a lot because I think that there are people um, that are that are wiser um, and older than I am that have <laughs> no I mean that have come up with these uh, because there was a whole thing when um, we first started being able to and this was way before my time but first started being able to use like recombinant DNA to um, do even basic research experiments where. Uh, there was, um, you know, a a lot of discussions, and they came up with sort of uh, recommendations for how it should be used. And I, they're doing similar things uh, with the CRISPR field, and so I let that in the hands of more capable uh, people than I uh, to talk about. I'll be I'll continue to study sort of how it works, and you know, if that is ends up being uh, helpful or not, uh, we'll see. But it doesn't change the fact that you know. Um, the biology itself is fascinating, and and you know if 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 Jennifer uh, if Jennifer and Emmanuel had not been uh, just studying you know basic science and understanding how uh, this this uh, bacterial immune system worked uh, and, and those that came before them, um, then we wouldn't you know have this terrific thing that you know even you know, the rock is using <laughs> animals, right? So, I mean, it's kind of taken over the mainstream. <laughs> Apparently, Ashton Kutcher is also really into CRISPR research. He tweets a lot about CRISPR. That's hilarious. And so we should just, just let everybody know, don't listen to Ashton Kutcher when it comes to genome engineering technologies. Uh, <laughs> pretty sure he has no qualifications. He for is that. not a valid yeah, source, I, is I, what I you're saying, so. right? I like him a lot. He's a, <laughs> uh, I like him as an actor, but let's not... Uh, <laughs> Oh man, that's funny. But yeah, uh, I definitely I want those rock delts. Um, can I get like some insertions? I think that that's what that guy was doing in his. Uh, oh really? He was li- like in his. Yeah, you should look it up. I wish I could find it. And I wish, yeah, there's some. Uh, oh, it was on the uh, John Oliver Christmas. Oh yeah, special. that's right. I heard that that and was he good. Was, actually, he was super. He was giving that guy a super hard time interviewing that guy that's in the that's garage. So and he, I think he was injecting it into his muscle or something. I don't know if that's what he was doing it for, but I have mm. a feeling it might have been. I don't know. It was pretty interesting, though. Out of his garage, his, his CRISPR kits. But it, is really, it really is that easy. That's the interesting uh, thing. Is it's, really, it's really pretty easy to, 
to use them, and that is what makes it a scary. Uh, it can make it a scary technology. Right, because you know they say that abs are made in the kitchen, but you know I wouldn't <laughs> mind some lab created abs. Yeah, just yeah. Uh, you know with a little injection, all of a sudden I've got rock hard abs. It'd be listen, amazing. Listen, man, I work around <laughs> scientists all day long, so if you don't think that we need some biceps and abs, uh, right? I'd have all the volunteers I needed right there. No working out ever. <laughs> it's just like just injecting other yeah. each other all day, like getting yeah. ma- massive scientists like The Rock. That's, That's what right. we need. That's right. That's right. Well, David, uh, I'm sort of out of questions, unless there's some sort of maybe something you're interested in that we haven't discussed at all, I'd be happy to continue talking. Maybe an area of research or something coming up, or do you have any conferences or anything like that? Or So I'll, I'll just say one thing um, that I think is really cool that my lab has been doing is, um, so for, for structural biologists, um, one of the things we do is we need to really purify whatever it is that we're going to look at. And so that means that we have to do lots of steps in the process to get what it is that we want to finally study uh, the structure of. And um, and that's a time-consuming, uh, expensive uh, process for these purification steps. And one of the things that, with the power of electron microscopy that's currently, uh, that's been currently unleashed, one of the things that, that we're trying to do is we've kind of made up this thing that we call a shotgun EM, which is the idea is that we just blow open uh, cells and look at its contents on the grid itself. So that the idea being that to solve multiple structures of important things in human cells in one experiment where you just put it on one grid, which would kind of be, it would be super exciting. We're in very early days and we just had a publication about that, but we're moving forward uh, pretty strongly on that front in the lab. And I think that that's going to be really, I think if it would, if we could get it to work, it would be really, really um, helpful in terms of uh, studying pretty much anything that that you want to study. So I'm pretty excited about that. And we just recently uh, changed it to single cell uh, because everybody wants to make things single cell. Like why use a bunch of, so we had to use a bunch of cells for those experiments. But what if I could just, take one cell and look at what the contents of that are. And so we, we've done those experiments now and we're about to submit a paper on using single cells to, to look at their contents on a grid and, and find, find, find some interesting structures from a single cell. No, I'm, I'm sort of ignorant on this. So in the, in the sense of like this electron, I can't even say the microscope. Word. So at that scale, like orient me in terms of wh- what scale are we talking yeah. about when we're looking at structures? So when I'm taking like what's the okay. smallest, I guess. Yeah. So when you're looking at atoms, you're on the scale of between like one and three angstroms. When you're looking at bonds and things like that, and in, in, in atomic um, atomic situation, uh, and uh, and then the best way to think about an angstrom is to is I always use like you know, a meter, right? So everybody knows like what a meter is, like a, right. Right, a meter stick, right? So then if you divide that into 10 and then you divide that into 10 and you divide that into 10 and you keep going for a while, then you get to kind of Eventually scale you get that there. we're going. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so we're imaging these things that usually are about one angstrom per pixel, um, which is, uh, yeah, 
is, is very pretty small. freaking small. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's very small. And uh, then the cool thing about it, or the bad thing about a microscope, is you imagine it's like it's a lot like a normal microscope that you would think about, right? Like when you anybody's looked at something under a microscope, whether it be a leaf or or a cell, um, depending on classes and things like that. Uh, but since we're looking at such a small scale is we have to worry a lot about any movement that occurs, right? Because any movement that occurs when you're looking at oh, that, yeah, that level, low yeah. of a scale is you just completely blur out the image. Like if I was waving my iPhone around trying to take, <laughs> a, trying to take a selfie of myself outside this building, right? Like it, it doesn't work, right? And you can imagine that it needs to be even, even more uh, uh, kind of stabilized right. to, under those conditions. Yeah. Interesting. Well, uh, if there's nothing else, uh, like I said, I, I don't really have much else to ask at this point. But uh, thanks so much for meeting me and for coming on. It's really fun, interesting. Yeah, and, I, uh, I had I had a great time. Thanks for having me. And sorry it took us so long to oh, no worries, get man. connected. No worries. As long as, long as we get it done, yeah. I really appreciate it. And uh, like I said, I'll give you my address whenever yeah. you're ready for the uh, the Weapon yeah. X program. Just yeah. sign me up, man. Yeah, and don't <laughs> sign up for my class because of this. If you're <laughs> All right. Well, once again, this is uh, David Taylor and podcast Care of Cooper Cherry signing off for the week.